Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Volrath Feed. I'm your host, Rich Rupp, product trainer and chef at the Volrath Company. And with me today, as always, is our co-host and number one producer in the business, Justin Pearson. Hey, Hello, Rich. Justin. Hey, how are you today? I'm doing good. You chuckle when I say that. You are. You do a heck of a job on this show. I couldn't well, do it without you. you. Uh, I appreciate that. And I, I couldn't do it without you. Well, we make a good uh, podcast team, hopefully, right? Well, I think so. Excellent. Right. Well, speaking of making a good podcast, I think we have another one on tap for today. Chef Jennifer Denlinger. And she is a chef instructor at the Walt Disney World Center for Culinary Arts and Hospitality at Valencia College. And she recently has been voted the 2020 Chef Educator of the Year by the American Culinary Federation, or ACF as it's known. So I think that's a pretty impressive honor, being Chef of the Year or anything of the year in a national organization like that, right? So a lot of different metrics that they look at when they, when any organization picks anybody to be whatever of the year. There's Right. And it's usually pretty stiff competition, so that's that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I thought uh, quite a nice honor there for her, for sure. The uh, news clip that we found talks about what is you know what is the American Culinary Federation and how they came up with this. It says the distinction is given by the ACF and is awarded to an active culinary educator whose knowledge, skills, and expertise have helped elevate the image of professional chefs. In addition, they provide leadership guidance and direction to students seeking a career in the culinary arts. And that's, I think, important because I, as being in the business and knowing kind of what's going on, it's, it's the, the careers in the, in culinary arts and in the food service business, um, it's getting harder and harder to fill some of these positions. Mm -hmm. Used to be uh, years ago, you'd find young people that got into the business we always joke that once you're in you never leave it and that's how a lot of people started in the industry they got it as a first job and either fell in love or depending how you look at it just stuck with it or um but it's just you're not seeing as much of that it doesn't seem like anymore so i know in schools the the um, culinary arts classes in high schools local high schools here the numbers are declining you're just not seeing as many people getting interested so it's it's good to see that um you know, she's being recognized for her role in helping keeping our industry supplied with top chefs. Definitely, yeah. And you, you've seen in recent years a lot more access to quality education, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, like we talked about before, a lot, of, a lot of chefs, they cut their teeth along the way and really learn their profession over years and years and being taken underneath somebody's wing and shown mm -hmm. the ropes. Yeah, I think you had less people like deciding at a young age, like, "Hey, I want to be a chef." And and now with more uh, educational paths, I think you you see that in younger people being like, "Yeah, you know this this is a career that I would like to go," rather than just falling into it. Well, that that's I suppose definitely true with more people that are seeing a different side of it and being exposed to it. But on the other side to that is the other side that a lot of people may be seeing nowadays is not really maybe the real world side of it, right? So what do we see? We see Gordon Ramsay. We mm -hmm. see Top Chef. We see a guy, uh, Friarian, is you know taking his show on the road and talking to these chefs in kitchens when they make their special whatever. It's all kind of painted in a very glamorous light. The real world of culinary, I mean, that's maybe a few of the people that are in it, but the real world is is a bit more of just a more back of house. A lot of them aren't ever seen by the public. Mm -hmm. And you've got to really just be in it for the reasons of loving what you do, creating that dish, sitting back at the end of the day and feeling good about what you did, than any of the glamour that you may think comes from it. Absolutely. There's a lot of guys that are still peeling potatoes and chopping carrots every day, right? Yeah. <laughs> that happens whenever a, a profession hits hits Hollywood, you know, and goes mm -hmm. mainstream and popularized. You see a lot of unrealistic expectations created, and and then when you know, just like professional um, professional sports, you got so many kids growing up like I want to be a professional football, basketball, baseball, oh, hockey, right, whatever. Yeah. And the percentage of people that actually make it there is just minuscule. And it's the same thing 
like you were talking about for for being that top chef mm -hmm. it's a very select few who make it to that point mm -hmm. not to say it can't be done but right yeah you, you got to keep your feet grounded and realize yeah you're gonna be you're gonna be pilling them potatoes <laughs> I, that might be one of the first we'll have to make sure we uh, ask her if if like is it day one of of new class okay first of all let me just take away any of these concepts you may think about what you're heading into here this is this <laughs> is the real world any any of you want out now's the time to get out right yeah right I from think day you one got, i think it's a good idea to hit people with uh especially younger adults with a dose of mm -hmm. reality especially with YouTube and everything and TikTok and you, you have all these people that are being massively popularized on these platforms and once again creates an unrealistic expectation of, mm -hmm. of fame and fortune. Right. Well, another thing that um, is going to be interesting today with uh, Chef Denlinger is, or Chef D, I guess is her student caller, Chef D is that she is a she has a PhD in philosophy and she's studying the effects of brain dominance in culinary and pastry. Mm. So, you know, the, left brain, right brain, all that stuff maybe going on. Right. With, well, it makes a lot of sense because that's something that can is applicable to any educators is understanding how to reach individual students' learning styles. So and with culinary, you 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 get a lot of the creative uh, brain people, but you mm -hmm. also get a lot of I'd say analytical, mm -hmm. mathematical people too, because right. it, it it's an art and it, it uses both sides of the brain, particularly in in um, baking. Exactly, but, I was just going to say like calling out pastry is probably the area where you have so much more of this artistic need versus maybe the logical side of Hey, I got to get this, 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 and this done. What's the best way I can do it? And what's my timing going to be? So all these things hit the window at the same time. That's a different kind of thought process than making the cake look beautiful for a wedding, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and being, being able to flex your educational approach with students uh, allows you to, to reach more students and allow them to be successful. It gives them the opportunity to be successful because not everybody learns the same way. And... Mm -hmm. If you approach education like it has been done forever with a rigid approach and like this is how it is, this is how you learn, a lot of great talent is going to fall through the cracks. It It's just the nature of that that approach. So, right. so I, different I, now. I, yeah, very much so. All right. Well, I, I know we're uh, going to talk to a chef here later today, so we're not going to talk too much more about education. <laughs> we'll... <laughs> But one other area that I think is going to be interesting with um, Chef D again is that, you know, as we talked with, remember Chef uh, Therese Nelson, and she was documenting black culinary history and, and trying to make sure she preserved that, that culinary history. Mm -hmm. Chef D here is also trying to do something like that with, a, with the Florida Food Anthropology, History and Cultural Anthropology of Food in Florida. That's a personal interest of her. So she's talking about Florida's first inhabitants and the food that they ate and just trying to document a lot of that. So that'll be another kind of cool thing I think we'll get from her today. So a lot of good stuff on the plate. Ha, huh, get it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, come I, on, I Justin. No, I appreciate uh, a good dad <laughs> joke. And I, I, I dish him out as much as the next guy, so... <laughs> if I only would have planned it, it just rolled off my tongue and I thought, well, there it is. Well, the best ones usually do. <laughs> well, I, I think we want to hear a little bit more about all of these things. So I think it's a good time to bring our guest on to hear about her experiences in culinary, more about uh, her instructional side of the industry, Florida food history, anthropology, and everything we want to know about the the mind and how that affects our culinary and pastry. So once again, please help us welcome Chef Jennifer Denlinger. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to speak with you. Well, no, it's our pleasure. Absolutely. And, and first off, congratulations for your 2020 Chef Educator of the Year Award. That is very cool. Thank you so very much. Yeah, that is awesome. I mean, uh, we got to see it. I, do they broadcast it every year? Because this year was a little different in the presentation. It was... 
it was recorded via Zoom, I think, or one of the other yes. platforms like that. Mm-hmm. Is it always available that people can see it? Because it was kind of fun watching that clip when they <laughs> presented that to you. Um, yeah, I, they archive uh, a lot, all that stuff. And I don't know how long it's actually made available on the web page. And uh, this year they're actually getting ready to start again for the 2021 awards. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, present awards this year in person uh, pending, uh, mm-hmm. pos- uh, you know, positive uh a positive environment so right. uh, uh, say, what a great recognition though for all the things you've you've accomplished in your life and your your career in education and we always like to ask chefs where did it start where did your culinary journey start and and, and get you to where you are today well i had always enjoyed cooking uh it was always a fun treat to go to my grandparents house and my, work in the kitchens with my grandmothers um, usually it was baking things or, you know, uh, helping them prepare dinner or anything such as that. And I always found it enjoyable. And, uh, when I was in high school, I had a job, uh, as a swim instructor mm. at a local pool. And, uh, you know, I was in high school, I needed a job and one of our clients there owned a restaurant in town and they, they were very nice people, uh, great children and just started talking and she's like, yeah, we own this restaurant called the wine cellar. I was like, Oh, okay. But of course, you know, I was busy working and eventually towards the end of the season, I was like, Hey, can I come see your restaurant one day? And it was right down the road, you know, very famous in our town. Um, it is no longer, uh, there. The owners have retired since then. Um, but I went down there one day and I met the chef and asked for a job no idea what I was doing. I said, Hey, and they probably the next week I started and, um, I was 17 at the time and never, I've never really looked back since then. That's, that's so, we hear that so many times and we, we joke and like, and I, I think anybody who's in the business or has ever been in the business, we always joke once you're in it, you just don't leave it. Right. And it's, it's so true that so many people get in and really like the industry and you get into it. And then, you know, there's that um, that side where you kind of grow in the job and you get to the next level and you eventually you find yourself in this career. But where did you start to take a, an idea that you wanted to get into the education side of the business? So I went to culinary school. I did an apprenticeship program. And after my apprenticeship program had ended, I continued my employment. And I worked and I had every, edu- every uh, intention of keep to keep on working. Um, unfortunately, there were some circumstances in my life had changed and I had to take a little bit of a leave of absence uh, from the kitchen. And when it was time for me to go back, uh, I was not able to go back at the full capacity uh, where I was working. And there were commercials on the TV for a culinary school, Le Cordon Bleu. And I knew some of the people in the commercials. And I went down there, same thing, talked to them. I applied and uh, started you know, eventually. And, uh, that was a long time ago, (laughs) um, 16 years ago, maybe. Yeah. You got your formal degree in, uh, culinary and, and you found that you, you liked that side of it. It was, was there ever a, a time where you were in it and, and doing the education side, I imagine probably not, but some people I think get into the education side and they go, ah, I just want to get back in the kitchen. Was there ever that time did you miss the kitchen or did you like being in school i do miss the kitchen sometimes i have a lot of friends in the industry so whenever i feel that need to uh go sweat behind a line for yeah. a while i'll go hang out i'll go hang out with with <laughs> them for a little while and i'm like okay i yeah. i'm 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 back into my classroom but uh, <laughs> i do get to experience experience it with my students um it's a different lifestyle uh mm-hmm. working in a professional kitchen so um as an educator, you have a little bit more flexibility uh, with your time and what you do. So it, that works for me. And we talked about that a little bit on the front half of the show here of that professional kitchens. And there's so many kids. And, and I think, you know, some of the, the popularity of some of the shows have, have glamorized the industry quite a bit. And it's a little different than that in the real world. Do you ever have to have that? Is that is that like day one, lesson one? Like, listen, if you think you're going to be the next Chef Ramsay. Yes. 
Yeah, you do that. I have um, a very candid and frank conversation with them. Mm-hmm. Um, early, very, very early on, I show them my burn scars. I show them start scars from stitches. I explain to them what they're going to get into. And I said, this is not just a career. This is going to be a lifestyle for you. And I, and I kind of give them some examples. And then depending on the split of genders in the room, I'll have a separate conversation with some of the females, uh, talking to them about what they're going to experience, which is going to be very different. And we talk about some things that might be a little bit sensitive. So I try to like have separate conversations uh, with them to try to, so that way they know and they're prepared. Um, and then I try to recreate as many real life experiences as they can with either guest speakers or field trips or videos or activities in the classroom. So that way they understand that it's not what you see on TV. Um, I explain that a lot of times what you see on TV are just actors in white chef coats who have scripts and uh, fake food. And they're there as an entertainment factor, not necessarily uh, a true culinary factor and you know we talked to it on and i have some some little um tidbits that i put out that i different uh websites that i follow who kind of put out some examples and we go through them and we watch some video clips and it's not to scare them away but it's to help paint a real true picture of what they're going to do oh no that is that's that's so needed so needed better day one than are starting on day one, then mm-hmm. waiting till their final semester and saying, "Oh, by the way, here's what you're now prepared to go into." Right. No good. I'm I'm glad to hear that because I think that's. Do you have any students that say, "Whoa, <laughs> really?" Not really at that time. I also encourage them to like as soon as they can, as soon as they're comfortable, to go find a job, and I'll help them find a job. We have career services, we have placement services, um, to help even get a part-time job one day a week, two days a week, doing something in a restaurant, even if it's not in the kitchen, just if it's front of the house, uh, anything of that sort, so they can start to understand the environment and the atmosphere of uh, the hospitality industry. And I think that that helps them greatly. And they also realize as we get going that, hey, I don't get to do what, the things that they are expecting to be able to do, hey, I'm gonna, you know, make this full course meal. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be famous. I want to do my own spin on things. And after a while, they, when they start to realize there's a method and a process to everything that they do, uh, their attitudes kind of change. And the ones that are really strong and really dedicated are the ones that usually rise to the top in not only the education part, and but also their career as well. When you're you're developing your curriculum, I know that you must have to look at the basics and the things you want to teach. And then there's there's things that you must, I would think, work in. Uh, and it's good to hear some of the things you're talking about with the students and getting them prepared for the real world. Um, how do you always just make sure your your curriculum is, is geared for what they're going to be entering into the market with? Like now COVID, for example, are you having to implement anything special into your curriculum dealing with COVID or how do you handle things like that? So we have um, implemented new cleaning and cleaning procedures and social distancing procedures. Um, and the way that we grade, we've taken away most of the group work, uh, uh-huh. had to modify recipes so that way where normally they might work with a team to prepare a meal. We've got, we've had to do um, some different things like that where they can still get the experience, but uh, do it in a, in a safer manner. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be keeping some of the pandemic education techniques moving forward once we head back to a a sense of normalcy? Is there like anything that you're like, hey, you know, this is we never would have stumbled across this uh, method or this way of doing things had we not entered a pandemic? So in the kitchen, not really, because it's still not the you know, it's still not up to where they should be learning like I said, it's not about sure. necessarily learning. It's about learning, helping them also to get a job. Mm-hmm. So we'll probably, as much as we're allowed to do safely, we'll go back. But I do believe that now, since we've had to put everything online and make transitions to all of our curriculum into online formats, we'll probably have a great reduction in the amount of time that we spent just in the classroom. Most of our classes, there's a, a lecture portion and then a lab portion. Um, if it's a class with a lab, of course, and 
we've had to transition so much stuff online and go through, um, I've been through so many different trainings about how to teach online because that's nothing that we've really had to do before mm -hmm. as culinary educators. That's not what we normally do. So I think now a lot of our classes, what we can offer online will now be offered online since we have all that put into place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that you, you bring up an interesting point about having to learn how to teach online. I've spent a good portion of my career in higher ed. And when my daughter, who uh, just graduated from college last year, she lamented to me quite frequently about how a lot of professors, they just didn't know how to teach online. And so mm -hmm. what they would do, is, because you're not in, in the classroom, they think, I just need to pile on more work. <laughs> so they, right. they felt like they needed to, to make up for it. So what what type of uh, training did you guys go through? Because I, I feel like a lot of higher ed institutions really just didn't have the resources or the time to properly prepare their faculty to better serve the students. So both of my higher degrees, my master's degree and my PhD were both taken online. So I had a really good understanding of what it was like to learn online because oh, that's, yeah. that's what I did for that. When this happened, uh, I went through, when we had to go fully online, we were in the middle of a semester. Um, mm -hmm. So what had happened, we got on spring break and then we just literally never went back um, <laughs> last year. And so at first we did what we could to just try to get students through. Like we were right in the middle. Um, for my classes, we went and we made food kits and we said, we're going to give you these ingredients here, you know, put this, this, and this in the freezer. You're going to have, unfortunately, you're going to have to go see if you can purchase these five items because you're going to need them in four weeks and it's not going to be fresh if we give it to you now. And then we, mm. so we made little packets the best we could. I got students through, you know, video demos and I translated everything that we would do in class the best of my ability and put it online so we could get through uh. the rest of that semester. Um, after that, and so after that, then we went into a more formalized uh, delivery. I took a digital professor class, and which the college sponsored. And then I also took a class on grading online, um, how you're supposed to grade mm -hmm. in an online format. And I've had several offshoots of those classes, little seminars come up here and there. Um, I've also put my my classes through a peer review process. So uh, had people look at them who were not culinary educators. So even though they may not understand the techniques or the terminology or even what in the, if they had no idea what we were talking about, they, I put them, you know, they would go through the class and say, Hey, you talk about this here, but it's not mentioned anywhere else. Or, you know, your rubric's not clear. Your objectives aren't clear. Um, your links don't work, etc. So from, from that, and it's always in constant revision. So I mm -hmm. know what classes I have next semester. And so one of them happens to be the class I have this semester. So I'm like, okay, so next semester I'm like making the edit. So that way next semester, um, it's done. Your curriculum is, is never a, in a solid format. It's always fluid. There's always mm -hmm. tweaks. There's always adjustments. Um, sometimes you think you have something under control, but comes to find out when you start talking to your students, getting, getting feedback from them, or you start grading their stuff. And they're like, wait a second, why is everybody missing or not doing well on one section? So, okay, well, maybe I need to go back and, you know, revisit how I deliver this information or more explanation, or maybe, um, maybe it shouldn't belong at this part, this part at this section in the class. Hmm. That's great. I mean, because just to hear, uh, an educator say we need to be fluid is especially in higher ed is is um, just a far stretch from a lot of people who say oh we've always done it this way and so it's yeah you, you have to you have to be able to reassess and reevaluate so that you can better serve your students so that's that's fantastic to hear and it's, it, and for you it's got to be particularly challenging to to grade a lab based class that's just yeah, I'm sure because, <laughs> you know, there's so much with, you know, the smells and the tastes and the textures yeah. that you just, you can't, I, mean, I, I bet you're an expert at just looking at something and saying, no, or that's not how it's supposed to be. So we ran a pilot this semester of teaching 
a lab-based class online and it's for uh, our hospitality students who have to take one culinary lab class. So for them, it's not as important uh, for them to learn the newest, greatest techniques. They're, the point of this class is to understand the way the kitchen runs. Mm. Normally when we're in person, it's a, a group-based class. So as you know, not to scare them off. We're just trying to get them acclimated, understand how the kitchen runs. So that way when they're running their other operations, they can um, understand. So this semester, we did run a pilot on it. And uh, here again, this is what I talk about. Education is very fluid. And as I go along, I'm realizing um, little things here and there. I found them lots of videos. I've done some demos and I provide them all the rubrics for grading. And I'm like, um, you need to be able to tell. And like this past week we did breakfast and I can tell you whether their eggs are cooked or not by looking at them Yeah. by the texture of them. And I said, I can't taste the, I can't, I can't taste them, but you have to do a self-reflection on their dish every week. They do self-reflection. They answer the questions and they're like, I like it. I don't like it. My mom liked it. My mom didn't like it. You know, you know, however they need to do it, but I can usually tell, um, through the videos that they submit, videos and or a PowerPoint presentation of like a series of pictures. I can tell whether they put salt and pepper in it. Um, you know, simple simple things like that. I can tell textures and it's not perfect, but it's getting the point across and they get, I get really good feedback from them. And they tell me how, how, excited are they, how excited they are when they have made a certain dish I remember these are students who don't want to be chefs necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, it is a little bit more challenging, but we're, we're working on it, making it successful. You know, continuing on with this, the, the thought of teaching and instruction, do you have any advice for operators? As you mentioned, you said something like uh, the new techniques or the latest and greatest uh something that's coming out and for people that have been out of school for a while, they're in, in the industry, they're an operator and they need to train their staff. Uh, do you have any thoughts on things that you would recommend to them as to help them train their staff, especially with your background, your, your higher ed, uh, your degrees on understanding um, how people think and understanding that type of learning. Do you have any thoughts on a way you can help an operator to train their staff? So one of the things that I have realized in my journey as an educator, it's always harder to explain something than what you, than how you know how to do it. I can, mm -hmm. I can make anything, do anything, but me translating that motion, that activity into words is very, very hard. Um, and after a while, I realized I just need to constantly communicate uh, what you're looking for, what, you, what you're thinking, how to tell. So I put oil, you know, for example, I would be like, okay, so we're going to turn the, uh, turn the stove on to number four. We're going to put the pan on. You guys have got to add this much oil to it. And then I show them the oil. And I said, this is how you can tell when the oil's hot. And you have to show them. Uh, the difference in the texture of the oil. And then you just have to verbalize and vocalize the entire thing, even though you're thinking it in your head and you know, that's one of the things that I realized that um, I had to work on. And even still, because sometimes I'll be just tasting their food just like that. And I'm like, okay, you know, that's a four out of five. This is a three out of five. This is a five out of five. And they're like, why? I'm like, okay, let me back up. So just because you know it, it doesn't mean that everybody else uh, knows it as well. So I find a lot of uh, communication and a lot of examples. And I purposely mess up things for students to see so they can see how to fix it. Mm -hmm. uh, I purposely mess up hollandaise sauce so they can see how to fix it. I purposely, you know, when we're mixing something, over mix it so they can see the difference. Um, and then you make them try it, right? <laughs> so well, that they know how, depending, how... <laughs> depending on what it is, right? Yeah. Depending on what it is. So that way they can see, see the difference. Um, and that, and that helps a lot. And I find that, uh, when I am in training, if I get a reason of why behind it, that always helps to greatly understand 
but as in with the education, that's part of my research still is learning how students learn the best in our field. We have a very kinesthetic and tactile field. Mm -hmm. So lots of lecture, lots of writing papers, um, you know, lots of classroom activities that rely on that. They don't seem to do that well. And I realized that years and years and years ago, um, the students that are drawn to this industry uh, are usually not, not always, but a lot of times they don't tend to be as academic if somebody was like going to go into the field of biology or, you know, to the medical field or or, Mm -hmm. uh, IT field. So uh, within that, you have to learn how to deliver your information in a way that's going to best suit your students. Mm-hmm. One of the best activities that I do, and it does need to be probably a tweak just a little bit is that I build an escape room for my students mm. for food safety uh. and sanitation. So was the students have to take this. Yeah. The students take the, take the, um, serve safe test. And if you're not familiar with any type of the sanitation test, they are proc. We pro we only proctor the exams. We don't write them. They come from a test bank that has been developed by the organization based off all the current, you know, guidelines from the CDC and FDA and all the different organizations. And sometimes it's really, really tough. Sometimes when I give the test, I, you know, I like, wow, this is not bad. And other times I'm sitting there looking at the screen, like, I don't even know how I'm going to answer this question <laughs> because it's, it's, it's a tough test. Um, and especially since the questions come from a test bank, uh, you can't guarantee which student's going to get what question about what subject, um, as long as they fit within the categories. So for one of the projects I did for the colleges that I built in the escape room, and it's in the classroom. And no, I don't really lock them in the room, but they have to answer a series of questions. Mm-hmm. And each question, you know, just like a regular escape room, it, one question leads to another question mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. another question. And they, they're like on a goose chase in my little tiny classroom. We have black lights, there's invisible ink, there's puzzles, <laughs> there's, you know, different scenarios to solve. Um, they have to determine lock combinations based on different temperatures. Huh. Um yeah. That's, that's clever. There's, I mean, uh, you know, and then at the very end, the very last question is there's a question about the temperature danger zone. There's little jars that are, that I see concealed the inside and they have to choose the two correct jars. To, and then we open them up. That's the very last question. If they're right, there's candy in them. If they're wrong, they're dried beans. So, <laughs> you know, and it, 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 the entire thing for the most part, were all scenario based questions just as they would have on their test. Hmm. What? So, but so they could like kind of see what they were doing in real world, real world experiences. Um, so that's always that's you know some of the some of the type of things that I like to do with them. Well, that's great because information retention is going to be so much higher when you can associate it with an experience like that, a real world applications, and then also something fun. I bet I, I bet the the students really dig that, and they they share that with their peers, and you know that's something that really uh, looked upon positively. The sanitation was always the hardest. Like I can do stuff with the nutrition, no problem, but there's so much in sanitation that you can't see, you can't touch, you can't taste. You just have to memorize all these stupid facts and figures about things. Yep. Mm. So I'm like, okay, well, what can we do? And my crazy little brain said, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any favorite students that you could talk about that some that came to you and Maybe day one you looked at them and thought, I don't know. And then at the end you were like, wow, what a, what a great student. Um, well, all of my students who stick around are usually really fantastic. And they'll, they will weed themselves out. I mean, just like with any career, any education, uh, once they realize a lot of times that it's a lot more work. Um, no, you can't wear fingernails. No, you can't wear makeup. No, you can't wear earrings. Yes, you have to stay for the entire class. Yes, you have to clean. Uh, yes, you have to wear the uniform. You know, you can go through the list of all the different things. Uh, yes, you're going to be working nights, holidays, and weekends. Um, but I try to build a really great rapport with all of my students. And I still have graduates now that I keep in touch with, um, either through social media or, you know, they'll contact me uh, to ask me for advice or tell me to tell me what uh, they're doing. But uh, I always give everybody equal opportunity. And, you know, when we have special events or we need, you know, student development, student development needs like 2000 cookies, you know, whatever it happens to be for the day. So everybody always gets the equal opportunity to learn extra stuff, to do extra things, um, you know, to participate on stuff outside of campus. And, 
as we go through these things and do these things, I, I get the chance to know my students a little bit better, uh, know them on a personal basis, and then we can also try to work on what their what their dreams and goals are for their career. Mm-hmm. Do you still see the hierarchy of the kitchen? Um, is that still kind of the way it is? I mean, years ago that used to have the, the the stereotypical head chef or the executive chef that was, you know, could be the tyrant in the kitchen. And I know that's kind of gone away. I think for the most part, people aren't that way anymore, but do you still see that hierarchy being firmly in place or is that softening up a bit as well in the industry? So having an executive chef or a higher up who is the tyrant of the place has gone away a lot because of Mm -hmm. HR has become a lot more prevalent, um, especially in your corporately run restaurants and uh, hotels. So that's, is not nearly as uh, prevalent, but yeah, you do have people who've worked very, very hard and it's a hard industry. So there are attitudes and tempers and um, sense of I'm in charge. Um, Other than that, they, they still have pecking orders in kitchen. So yes, there usually is one or two people who are overall, and then it branches down like a tree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that is very much uh, in place. So um, a lot of places don't use the same words, though. So yeah, you still have your chef, but then sometimes the next might be the assistant chef. It might be the sous chef. It might be the prep chef. Uh, some so sometimes the terminology is a little bit different, even though there is some sort of hierarchy. And yeah, you do have to, to work up it. And I explained to that to that my students very much. <laughs> You're going to start at the bottom. Maybe not peel on potatoes, but don't, you know, you'll, you'll come in at an entry level position, depending on what you know, maybe level B or level C, you know. Going back to what you said, when you have separate conversations with your students, things have come a long way for, for, uh, women in the kitchen and being able to advance and break through some of those challenges and roadblocks that, that have been there forever. But still, long ways to go um, in, in that equal treatment. Still a lot of uh, boys club mentalities going on. And, and so there's progress to be made. What Could you go into a little bit more detail about what you're preparing your female chefs for? So I explained to them that you're going to be working in a hot kitchen in close quarters there's, uh, you'll be touched by people, you'll be touching other people, not on a purposeful subject, not on a purpose. Sometimes you'll be brushing up against people. Uh, you're hot, you're sweaty. I talk about uh, appropriate undergarments to wear. I explain that you're, you, you might be away from your family. So just like everybody else in there. So uh, kitchens are sometimes a place for inappropriate behavior or inappropriate feelings. Um, I give them some examples like, you know, with no names and no tracing back to places where I've worked, but I give them examples of things that I've had to do, um, situations that I were, that I was put in as being a young female in the kitchen. Um, and just so that way they understand and I, you know, I explain about, uh, what you should do, what you can't do, you know, what you shouldn't do and just kind of let them know so they're not walking into could possibly be walking into a something that was very uncomfortable that's awesome to be able to get that heads up and like here you know this is <laughs> this is what you may experience do you also um let them know that a lot of that i'm sure you do but uh, a lot of those things aren't okay and what they should mm-hmm. do because i've talked to other female chefs who just kept that bottled up inside because they thought it would kill their career if they spoke up about inappropriate situations or, or behaviors from coworkers. Right. We talk about being vocal. I said, you may, you may or may not want to run to your HR because that's not always the best solution either, but you have Mm -hmm. to learn how to stand up for yourself um, without being a bully yourself as well. Mm -hmm. But you also have to have some pride and integrity Uh, in in yourself and in your job Um, could possibly you know see another co-worker that you trust at your same level or go up but there's also consequences if you go to HR so you have to make sure you you can um, weigh both of 
your options or all of your options? And also, uh, what are the ways to keep yourself out of these situations? Mm. Like, don't be peeling something. Don't hold something in a way, certain way when you go to peel it, you know, like, is that going to cause the issue, you know, or if you're going to wear colored undergarments without an undershirt and work in a sweaty kitchen, you know, is that going to cause the problem? So maybe you need to think about uh, the way you present yourself in the kitchen, you know, you know, just little things such as that. Okay. Still, so many people are just blindsided by, Mm -hmm. by things and, you know, you never would expect to have to experience some of those things, so. Right. We'd like to say that a lot of this stuff doesn't happen and we could just be blind to it all or or bare our heads in the sand and pretend. But uh, I think having an awareness of maybe what's happened in the past and then having a plan that if it happens now, what to do is is valuable to have that. So many times I think when situations come up, people think, oh, if I only would have done this or thought this way. Sometimes it's good to think about potentially what can happen and what you'll do in that situation. And then when it happens, now you know what to do, right? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that is going away again in our industry. I think it still can be around, but I I also know that um, that comes from the top. That's that's a tone that's set in the environment of the kitchen or in the restaurant that – there's there's been some really good people I've seen that work and and do not tolerate one bit of that and eventually it just it doesn't exist and then there's others that unfortunately I've seen probably uh, are probably one of the ones that encourage that behavior so that's unfortunate though for sure one of the things we talked about uh, just to shift gears just a little bit I know there's a couple of things we wanted to cover and um, one of them was your uh, wanting to be the ambassador to Florida cuisine. You talk mm. about, you know, Florida and uh, the, I, I see is just a, a big smile on your face where we brought this <laughs> up. It's a personal interest of yours that yeah. you're trying to be the ambassador for Florida cuisine. Can you just talk about what you're doing there and, and um, some of the things about Florida? I do have a webpage that I work on in my spare time. Uh, it's floridachef.net. And I spend time with farmers and growers and producers uh, in the state. Haven't done much in a year, but hopefully soon I'll be welcome back. And I get to know them, talk about what they do, how they do it, why they do it, and all that goes behind the scenes to get that piece of produce or gallon of milk, whatever you need, uh, to your door. So it's a lot of fun and I always get to make all sorts of recipes and I share with them the recipes. So through that fresh from Florida, which is done by the Florida department of agriculture, they have a program and I applied uh, for that, which allows me to use the fresh from Florida logo on my um, webpage and anything that I, that I'm promoting at the time uh, I work. Uh, I am an acquaintance with, uh, chef uh, Justin, who is this basically the chef for the state uh, for the Florida Department of Agriculture and his team. And, you know, we bounce ideas off of each other and help each other out uh, at events when we have events uh, that promote the Florida products from that. So um, I entered into their ambassador program and it was, you know, just paperwork to fill out and they take a took a look at what you do and so yes, we want to have you promote our fresh from Florida uh, products. Hmm. So is this then, and the same with the um, anthrop- food anthropology that you do with Florida? Is this the same? So yeah, it's. I work, uh, like I said, I work with the uh, farmers and the growers, and I do, and I've done research on different topics. A lot more to go, long ways to go with this, but just try to figure out, you know, how we get crops to the table, how you know, how Florida became a beef state. How do we end up growing sweet corn? You know, why do we grow tomatoes? Why do we grow strawberries? I mean, we were one of the first places in the nation to be settled. Um, How did all this happen? So I just, you know, tie in my book research with what I know from working out in the fields, uh, what they tell me and trying to like piece piece everything together till we, uh, get a good story of Florida food. So what are some things that most people would be surprised to know um, 
either came to the U.S. through Florida or that Florida's influenced the rest of the U.S. in something? Oh, I'm sure. Uh, one of the things that I learned that was super interesting was at one of the orange juice processing facilities, which first of all are really, really hard to get into. Like I had to call favors in from people. Like I met somebody, you know, like at a trade show and kind of, you know, super, t super top secret for whatever really? reason. Yeah. So I've been to three, <laughs> I've been to three orange juice places and they were all, they all did different products, like different forms of it. So one of the most interesting things I found out about orange juice is that freshly squeezed orange juice does not have any smell huh. and we always smell it. And what happens is that there's pectin from the rind of the citrus, uh, and the acid from the rind of the citrus actually causes the orange juice to separate. So mm. if you squeeze oranges or grapefruit juice or lemon juice or anything like that on your own, you squeeze it by yourself at your house, you put it in the fridge, you'll notice that it starts to separate. So the mm -hmm. pectin from the juice starts to, um, uh, gets broken down from the acid from, from the juice. And this is natural. But when you go to the grocery store and you buy all your juice, it's always bright orange and it's always um, in a, in a perfect solution uh, with some texture to it. So what happens is that they have to pull out uh, the acid and the pectin and they add uh, like they add a substance that's natural to it and they emulsify it all back in hmm. to the juice. So that's why you have orange juice in the grocery store that's never separated. If that's the time you buy, never separate it, and it has smell to it, and it has a texture to it, and huh. it's called it's a common practice. And they use something called flavor pellets, and it's all approved. It's all natural, you know. They're all natural and stuff, but it's just a separate, a separate step. Um, this happens a lot of times when uh, they go to pasteurize orange juice. Uh -huh. So is, is that common amongst uh, concentrates and, and not from concentrate? Mm -hmm. Huh. That's yep. fascinating. Yep. There's only one brand that I know about that does it differently. Um, again, they're, they're an organic brand. And that's how I learned all this. I was like, wow. <laughs> um, orange juice pasteurization was also de developed in Florida. So there was a guy who determined how to or pasteurize orange juice, which puts Florida on the map because now it could be shipped and uh -huh, shared across, right? across the country and, ac and across the world. Mm-hmm. Dr. Phillips. I think pasteurized juices, though, in general, have a different flavor to them. Um, mm -hmm. do. Yeah. So, that, uh, so when you were touring these plants, was it obvious to you why they didn't let people in? Was there something? Was it just sanitation or is it the secret or is it uh, the processes? Like or who knows? I don't know. Like, I just don't know why. So the ones who didn't let me in, and I, you know, I'm not giving any names, but the ones who didn't. Nope. Nope. Let me go in. I was makes me very curious of why when these other ones did. <laughs> yeah, I just wouldn't have thought. But hmm. yeah. in your other research about uh, food history and stuff like that, have you come across any really interesting recipes? Have you resurrected anything or give, given some old time recipes a try and found any <laughs> any hidden gems? I I have found quite a few, though I have not been brave enough to try some of them. Uh, so. <laughs> oh. Um, they're just food, foods from the wild, you know, like using beauty berries and using, um, beauty berries. Mm -hmm. what, huh. What's that? Uh, where are you guys located right now? We're in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Okay. So never mind. So in the fall, there's these purple, <laughs> <laughs> there's these bright purple, like magenta color berries that come out. Um, huh. They're called beauty berries. And as kids, you know, we would just play with them and smash them around. But apparently, apparently it's, it was a real edible thing. Um, there's different ferns and, and uh, lots of different foods in the wild that I've just not, I want to, but I haven't quite yet just dug in and like, let me go pick something from the yard and recreate different recipes. Hmm. Well, another area then that um, we were looking forward to speaking with you about today was your understanding of the effects of the brain dominance in culinary and pastry. Justin and I, we talked about this and we both kind of can, uh, and w neither one of us are real pastry people. And I think that we realize there is a difference in the way some people can 
make pastry and present pastry and others of us that just don't have that skill. So interested to hear more about what you were looking at in that area. So this is what I did my uh, formal dissertation research on for my PhD. So when I was teaching, I started realizing in our food safety and sanitation class, um, which, you know, had very little hands on, it was all lecture, it was all videos and things such as that. Um, different groups of students were doing different types of activities to learn. So most of the time that class is mixed, it might have culinary students, it might have baking and pastry students, it might have hospitality students, but I just started to know different, notice different patterns with them. Uh, during review times, some students would choose this activity, some students would choose this activity, and I, I just started noticing differences. I was also teaching one culinary-based class and one baking and pastry-based class. And um, I started realizing that even as an instructor, I had to present myself differently and present my lesson differently to the pastry students than I did with the culinary students. So then I just started thinking, um, and I've done some research not nearly enough um, to make a, a solid statement as, like, as a uh, confirmation. Uh, but part of my research for my dissertation and some of my ongoing research is looking at um, the difference in the brain dominance as opposed to the way the students learn through the learning styles um, and their personalities too. So they're very different people. I can walk mm-hmm. into a room of students if they're all in the same uniform, which they should be, I can usually go through and tell you who's culinary, who's pastry, even if they have the same uniform on by the way they present themselves and some, some little uh, significant uh, details, quirks about, about them. Mm-hmm. So it's about what, what are some of those differences that you notice? Um, things like different hair colors, uh, the way is that, that more they... the chef side, the no, culinary side? side. Pastry, oh, side. pastry side is the, pastry okay. side. Oh, yeah. um, the amount, the amount of tattoos and where they're located, um, um, where they're located. Col- yeah. Like oh. what you can see. I mean, of what you can see, sure. like sock, sock colors, um, the way their knife kits are put together, ah. uh, the way they label their knives. Um, oh, there's just all sorts of, all sorts huh. of different little things that, that, um, I noticed the and, burns on their uh, hands and arms <laughs> or the yeah, burns we'll, are. We'll, yeah. Well, we all have those. Um, yeah. And then it was like, even in class, like taking notes for them, like the way that the pastry students take notes are different than the culinary students, because it's just a very, it's a different mindset. And what sure. they do in the kitchen and in the classroom is also very different. You know, baking and pastry is not so time-based, you know, it takes time. It takes lots of steps for culinary. You know, most of the time we're just like, go, 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 go. Um, mm-hmm. The science the side they, of baking. Yep, science. It's a, baking is very, very particular. You can't mm-hmm. just add a little of this or a little dash of that. It's very precise. Culinary is not so much. Creativity side uh, for baking and pastry, their creativity comes from colors and shapes and designs because they cannot adjust. They can't just add a pinch of this or a pinch of that necessarily. But on the uh, culinary side, their creativity is, oh, let's just add a little bit of lemon peel to this or let's add some Tabasco mm-hmm. or let's add, you know, some caraway seeds or, you know, you know whatever it happens to be. So the, the way that they find things creative are also um, very different. And mm-hmm. I started to draw um, some correlation between their learning styles and their brain dominance. So now... It's, uh, I've just started again on the research in a different format, um, incorporating it into my curriculum. So I make sure that things are presented in more than one format uh, for the students so they can see, uh, try, try to get the best, the best format for learning for them. Hmm. It doesn't always work, but I try. No, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you... You probably are just getting a, a really a much better definition and um, documentation of something that people have probably seen for a long time. It's like you can tell we're all in culinary, but yeah, there's certain people that are more apt yeah. to go kind of on this side. And like my wife, she's really good at baking and she can follow those recipes. And I, I that's not me. It's just right. not me. That's so. exactly that's exactly it. And that's and that's what I'm just yeah. trying to you know get that distinction and. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think a lot of other people could take value in in recognizing those differences between their students, no matter what field you're, you're teaching in. But if you start recognizing different patterns and behaviors like you're doing, it's going to allow you to be able to address their educational needs a little bit more yeah. effectively, I would imagine, for sure. Right. So. And even going into um, the field, you know, people who run pastry departments, you know, maybe you should present your information in your meetings or your prep sheets or your recipes or your guidance in this format. And ones that maybe work in the culinary or the hot side should maybe do it this way. And if you have mm -hmm. a team of both, maybe this is how you need to do it. You know, just things that I look at, think about. Mm -hmm. All right. Very interesting stuff. <laughs> uh, Chef D, as your students call you, thank you so much for uh, joining us here on the show. And uh, we always like to ask our guests that um, at some point in your career, your your wherever, you've had something that maybe you've heard, a quote from someone or something that you, you've read that guides you or influences you in some way. Do you have something like that you could share with our listeners today? People always need to eat. So if you love what you do, you'll always have a great career. That's a fact. We always say that in our industry, right? There are certain industries I think that we can look at and go, oh, you know, there's a good day that automation might take over. But our industry, not so much. There's a lot of things that we do that people still like that interaction and and the way we do it. So very good. Well, thank you again for today. We really appreciate it. Uh, any last minute thoughts or if anything, anyone wants to reach out to you and get involved or look at what you're doing and your research either in your Florida ambassador program or anything? You just want to give a, a shout out again to those websites or anything? Yes, of course. So you can find me on uh, Facebook, uh, Florida Farm to Table. Uh, and uh, there is an Instagram, a Twitter, and a Pinterest page that goes along with them as well that I showcase the recipes and stories from the farmers and any other tips of information that you might need. Uh, my webpage is uh, www.floridachef.net. And as for my students, you can follow us along on social media at, at uh, Valencia Culinary Pastry and Hospitality. And uh, we showcase everything that our students do and uh, talk, share their experiences and talk about what we do on a daily basis. Perfect. Perfect. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. We, we really appreciate it. Congratulations again oh, on thanks. your your award and, and um, thanks for your, your insights and, and uh, explaining the industry for our listeners and opening some eyes, hopefully, and maybe even giving some people some, some good uh, encouragement to get into our industry. We certainly yeah. have a, a fun industry that can be very rewarding and a great career for, for the right people, right? So we wish you the best of luck and continued success for you and your students. And thank you again for being with us today on the Volrath Feed. Cool. Thank you very much for having me. Well, there we have it, Justin. Another uh, great episode, I think, of the feed, and pretty much what we were talking about on the front end, as far as the, you know, the what we wanted to hear about the education side of it, and and how she approaches teaching and the, the students and the different way you have to teach to each student, and mm -hmm. what she talked about at the end there about baking and how you can see. Just by the way a person dresses and carries themselves, you kind of get an idea of their personality and where they might fit. So, yeah, well, it's it's clear why she was selected as you know the top chef last year. She, as an educator, is always educating herself and improving. You know, it's it's not like a finish line where you reach and like, okay, I've learned everything I need to know, and I'm going to just kind of stay here. No, you've always got to be improving because things are always changing. We're all and you got to grow with the times, and, and that's that's evident with how she's approaching her uh, processes in the classroom and with her students. I I agree, and I think when you're an educator or you're a person that um, really likes what you do, it's it's just it's not a a job that you go to each day. It's kind of the way you live, right? You have those mm -hmm. passions, those those natural interests and things, and that's I think how she is when. We talked about um, food anthropology in Florida. You know, she got a big smile on her face, and um, that's just interesting to her. And that's why she kind of just—that's who she is. And it's not mm -hmm. a not a thing she's got to work at. It's because she likes doing it. So then there comes the success of people that are in those types of positions that 
they like what they do. All right. Well, another great episode in the books for today. So, Justin, do you have anything, last words you'd like to say to our listeners? Yes, I would like to remind everyone to please click that subscribe button. Never miss a moment with a chef or food service industry professional again. And while you're at it, we would also appreciate it if you would share the Volrath feed with a friend. There you go. Appreciate that. And if there's anything that we are missing that you'd like us to cover on the show, please reach out and let us know what you think at volrathfoodservice.com slash the feed. And again, if you do everything as if a customer were watching you, that's probably a pretty good guide of doing things right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week ahead, and until next time, take care.